Welcome to The Milk Check, a podcast from T.C. Jacoby & Company, where we share market insights and analysis with dairy farmers in mind. Welcome, everybody, to The Milk Check. This month, we've got two guests. Welcome, Serena Sharp with the Daily Dairy Report and Ag Business, and also Jeff uh, Vanderhoevel. Jeff, why don't you quickly introduce yourself? Well, Ted, it's great to be here. Um, I'm a faithful listener of the Milk Check, so it's fun to see you guys uh, by the power of Zoom. I'm not sure if our listeners will see that, but um, I was a dairy farmer in Southern California for 39 years, and in 2018, urbanization took my dairy. I was very involved in uh, water and milk pricing issues as part of the Milk Producers Council, which is Dairy Farmer Trade Association Board, and uh, when I sold my cows in 2018, I was going to move to the Central Valley because I had kids and grandkids here. Given my experience in water policy, uh, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act had just been passed in California and was being implemented throughout the Central Valley. And Milk Producers Board asked me to be the dairy industry's guy on water supply and the implementation of what we call SIGMA, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. So since 2018, mid-year, that's what I've been focusing a lot of my time on. That particular act is designed to be implemented at the local level. So what that meant was I, I needed to identify where we had dairies in the Central Valley that were in what the state had designated as critically overdrafted basins. And it turns out that's pretty much all of the Central Valley. It's critically overdrafted. There were dozens of new groundwater sustainability agencies that had been formed as a result of that law. They were all in the early stages of organization and then gathering data with a goal of putting plans together for how they were going to bring their area into a basically balance or sustainability. So in the course of that, I covered, we have dairies from south of Bakersfield all the way up to Stockton that are in overdrafted bases. That's about a little over 200 miles. So north to south, I spent a lot of time on the road, but that's what I do is focus on water supply for the California dairy industry. Well, thanks, Jeff, and welcome. Dad, I know you've got a question that uh, you're burning to ask, so I'll let you go ahead and start it off. I bet every time you open the papers these days, you're seeing pictures and hearing dissertations on how miserable the water supply is in California. Just yesterday, I picked up the Sunday edition and I had pictures of parched land, perfectly brown, not a bit of green on it, but the last number we have on milk production is up two and a half percent. So how do we manage to have all these dire predictions of drought? And we've had predictions about drought for 50 years. And every time we hear it, the milk production in California goes up. Is this the year that all of a sudden we're going to have a drought that really counts? Let me pose that question to you as a matter of getting the ball rolling. I hope not. We would hope that we can manage our way through it, but it's real. If we don't get some rain and snow and we don't have any surface water, I think we are going to begin to bite down on the water availability, particularly in the Southern San Joaquin, because those water districts there now, the groundwater sustainability agencies that I've described to you in areas where we have some fairly significant dairy presence have put their guys on water allocations. They're fairly generous to start and they ramp down over the next, uh, until 2040, but those are real and it's essentially overdrafted water and they're paying fees to access it that they haven't had to work into their budgets before. And then probably the big thing, you know, to respond that might be different this time. 
And I remember when I first started my education on the California water system, which was the early 1990s, I took a Central Valley water tour for a few days, three-day tour, and got familiar with the, well, the problems in, in the Central Valley. And then uh, a few months later, I did the Colorado River tour. You know, the biggest single lake in California is Shasta, Lake Shasta. That's the source lake for the Central Valley Project. It's four and a half million acre feet of water. That's the biggest lake in California. Lake Mead and Lake Powell are the two supply lakes on the Colorado River system. Each one of those lakes, each one is over 27 million acre feet. And they were full. They were full in 1999. So in the last 23 years, we've taken well over 50 million acre feet and we're down to about 15 million acre feet. And we're hitting shortage provisions that we never thought we'd see. And I think for the Central Valley dairy industry, I think we've been in competition for water for a long time with other things that are more profitable per acre, like grown pistachios and almonds and those, those two in particular. So we've had a competition for water. In fact, a lot of dairymen have taken out some ground and put in those permanent crops. And I think in the back of our mind, we always figured if push came to shove, we could go to the Colorado River area, the region there in Imperial Valley, Palo Verde Valley, and post in Arizona that had access to the Colorado and buy forage. And I think that all bets are off with regards to that because of the Colorado River issues. So, you know, Ted, I hope that you can next year rub this in our face and say, see, you guys, uh, you know, chicken little, sky really isn't falling. But you know what? It just might be. And I don't think we want to uh, just sit on our hands. From what you say, it sort of sounds like we're looking at maybe a crisis in 2023. I mean, this year is almost gone. Oh, yeah. No, I think this year it's baked in. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of change in milk production in 2022 on water. This I, year, it's affecting dairy producers on the farm in their feed costs, but they're weathering that storm for now, and super high milk prices are helping them to do that. But their cost of production is much higher than it's ever been, even after you adjust for inflation. So when you add to that environmental restrictions unrelated to water, high labor costs, high energy costs, the higher costs to move other crops, not just forages, out of areas that have a surplus like the Western Corn Belt and get that all the way over to California or canola from Canada down to California on rail. You add all that up and their cost of milk production is simply too high. $25 milk was a Band-Aid on that. And it does take, I don't know, six months probably of negative margins before we start to see a downturn in milk production. So I agree it's a 2023 problem, but it's a problem that is having an impact on dairy producers in California today. We're in the Midwest. We're not used to that kind of a scenario, but how close to the bottom are we? It's very site-specific. And a lot of it has to do with what type of surface water supply has historically come into that area. We can get into detail uh, you know, on where in California there's trouble. Generally, the southern San Joaquin south of Fresno is more vulnerable than north of Fresno. But there's a lot of dairy south of Fresno. But then there are pockets south of Fresno that there's a pocket in Kern County, South Kern County, that has rights to the Kern River, which actually in wet years produces a lot of water. They're in a very different position than, than their colleagues 20 miles north who don't have rights to the Kern River. So it's very, very location specific. There's roads that delineate the boundary between a water district and an undistricted area. The dairy farmer that's north of the street that's in the water district is in a very different position than the dairy that's south of that road and not in a water district. 
So it's very, very site specific. And I will say this too, there's been a paradigm shift in the attitude of farmers, not just dairy farmers, all farmers. Typically when we've had wet winters, if a guy wasn't irrigating, he didn't really necessarily want to take on surface water because the groundwater wasn't regulated. It was free essentially. And so they let a lot of water go out to the ocean in wet years because they just didn't think about capturing it. That has all completely changed. If we get a wet year, the last wet year was 2019, and we started some of it already then. But I would say that now, if we get a wet year, it will be remarkable to see what farmers will do to hang on to that water. And a lot of it's going to be just flooding their fields and letting the water percolate down into the ground uh, in the wintertime. I mean, that's the one last remaining large supply of water that it hasn't been spoken for are those infrequent, but maybe two years out of a decade, large wet years. And what we've got to do is get that water, capture it, spread it out, disperse it over the landscape and get it down back into the, into the groundwater table. I'd say at the local level, farmers are, are berming their fields and getting ready for it. We need some additional conveyance facilities to do it more long-term, but that's what we need to do. I think one other thing on feed, I think we've never really thought about our feed inventory as really being the water underneath us in groundwater. We had a dry year, we could always pump groundwater. That's not gonna be as easy of an option or maybe not even an option. And so I think in the California dairy industry, we got to start budgeting for carrying much larger feed inventories than we've historically thought about. Jeff, I have a question for you. I'm operating under the assumption that this is really an issue about feed rather than an issue about not having the actual water for the cows to drink. Is right. that a fair assumption? Yeah, it is because you know that's one of the things we found out as we've gotten into this. There was a perception that dairy was a big water user. And it turns out that we pump a lot of water. We need access to good, clean water 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as opposed to, say, a, a farming operation, right? They, they have an irrigation season. They're growing a crop. They hit the ground hard. But then months, they don't ever run that well. But the amount of water we actually consume that it actually disappears is relatively small. It's much smaller per acre than farming. In fact, uh, the number we're using is about six inches of consumption on the dairy footprint. That is where the, you know, the corrals, the barn, uh, the feed area, that footprint needs about six inches of water. So if you think of the Chino, Southern California dairy model, we bought all our feed and exported all our manure. We basically ran a milk factory. We had very little water consumption on that operation. The water that you recycle eventually ends up on a crop and that's where it gets charged then. It gets charged to that crop. So the dairy footprint is viable in a restricted water area. But here's the big vulnerability the industry has, and the one we're going to we're spending a lot of time and effort trying to solve, is what do you do with all those manure nutrients? Because historically, what we've done with manure is we've utilized it as fertilizer. And if we're going to be restricted on water, and we're not going to be able to grow crops in the volumes that we need to utilize all that manure, not only are we short on feed, we've got a very significant surplus nitrogen problem. So the industry knows that, you know, one of the things about the California industry that, you know, I think is credibly admirable is that we faced environmental challenges a lot earlier than the rest of the country did. 
We got ourselves organized. We fought like crazy on all the fun milk pricing stuff, but on the environmental stuff, you know, the producers and processors and the co-ops, we were all on the same page and uh, set up a separate organization, Dairy Cares, and, um, you know, got the universities involved and the government at all levels. So we've been working on air issues and wherever we can try to monetize solutions so that we can generate revenues, you know, and you can see the digester program is one of those. And now we know we got a nitrogen problem and we're working on it big time. So let's switch to feed because it sounds like the water issues that California have really manifest themselves from a market standpoint as a feed issue. Serena, is it fair to say that the cost of feeding cows in California has doubled in two to three years? I'm not sure if we're quite at double, but it is significantly higher. I would put the cost of milk production in California, not just feed, but all the other expenses as well, in the low to mid-20s range. Everybody is well over $20 a hundred weight. And that's going to go up because, as Jeff mentioned, their forages are extremely expensive. Corn silage, they have just wrapped up that harvest. They're not feeding this year's corn silage yet. They will be in a few months. And that's 60% of your ration locked in for a year. What they're paying for this year's corn silage is sharply higher than it was a year ago. And that was higher than the year before that. So we're starting to stair step these ration costs sharply higher and they're paying very high prices now. And those costs are not going to go down. They're going to go up. So it's almost like it's a perfect storm. You've got water issues in California, which mean they have to import even more food. The cost of freight has gone up. The corn price has gone up. Every cost in the feed cycle has has gone up significantly, creating the cost of producing milk in California. It's just made it much, much higher. Yeah. And it's not just California's water issues that have raised this feed cost. So historically, we have a major surplus of grain available in the Corn Belt, the Canadian canola crop, and we pull all those crops into the Southwest, the Pacific Northwest, and into California. But because we had a drought throughout the West, We're pulling harder on those feed supplies in New Mexico and Texas, for example. We also had a very poor crop in the Central and Northern Plains. So that's usually where that grain came from. And they don't have a surplus or as large of a surplus there due to their drought. So we're just moving farther and farther east into the Corn Belt to pull on these crops. So we've increased the freight expense. We've also increased the local basis. So these regions that were surplus areas like South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, instead of selling corn at a discount locally, they're selling it at a premium to make sure they have enough corn in the area. You start at that premium and then you add freight before you get that corn to California or Texas or Idaho, wherever your dairy cows are the most hungry, I guess. So if you look at corn futures, which are extremely high, we've got December corn at almost $7 a bushel today. That understates the feed costs for almost every dairy producer in America, not just those on the West Coast, but those on the West Coast feel it most extremely. Because of the higher basis. Because of the higher basis. One of the things that we've been theorizing, or at least I've been theorizing lately, is that 2023 is going to be a year to find where we're going to be much more short class four milk than class three milk. So today we're class four milk is running about $3 above class three. Let's assume for a moment that that's going to continue. And what's happening in California almost makes me feel like it has to continue because if our break even in California is $22, $23 a hundredweight, class four prices can't get much lower than they are right now. Or you're putting California dairy producers 
in a serious disadvantage. So if the additional cheesemaking capacity that's coming online next year could continue to cause somewhat of a suppression of class three prices, you've got the opposite thing going on in class four, where you're walking a fine line between actually causing some significant pullback in production in California because it's just not cost effective. Am I looking at that the right way? I think you're correct. Pullbacks in production, though, always take a long time. So we need to see milk prices go sharply lower, or not even that much lower to put some guys underwater. But you need significant financial losses for several months in a row before we start to see restrained production. That often happens slower than you think, but I do think that class three will have all the milk. That class four is going to balance. We will be tight of milk in some places. Certainly, we're not expecting big growth at the very least, and we are expanding cheese production capacity. So I think we're going to have heavy class three production, much lower class four production. But I want to be careful about suggesting that class four milk can't go below producers break even because the market doesn't owe anyone a living and dairy producers know that through experience. I can't agree with that statement more than I do. I agree. I would observe that that the dynamics have changed uh, significantly from what we're used to. And I'm not sure I have the correct vision going forward. It would appear to me that we're looking at a, at a market now based almost entirely on cheese pricing. And we're going to see class one sales and class four as progressively smaller categories going forward. So how do we look at that to try to figure out where we're going to be three or four years from now? It's, uh, it's a little hard to get your head around it. We grew up thinking that when the end of August came, we were going to wind up with a uh, mushrooming demand for class one milk. We still have some demand, but it's not nearly as frantic as it was in years past. So um, it's hard to see how that's going to play as things go down the road. Dad, the, I agree with what you're saying. And I wouldn't even say slowly. We are becoming a dairy industry that is class three dominant. But I think there are regions of the country, with California and Arizona being at the top of the list, that are still strongly skewed towards class four. So I think whereas definitely the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, but even Texas and the Mideast either have been for a long time or are becoming very class three dominant, California is really a class four dominant location. And I would put it this way, for 20 years, 25 years, which is more or less my career, the assumption that class three milk prices are usually about a dollar above class four milk prices, you could pretty much count on that. Not perfectly, but that was the average. I'm willing to argue, at least for the next three or four years, that's not the way it's going to be. That we're actually going to see class four milk, including 2022, 2023, 2024. I'd be willing to say I bet class four milk average is a higher price than class three milk and maybe significantly higher because nobody's adding any class four capacity in areas where milk production is growing. And the dominant class four region has always been the Central Valley of California. And with some of these issues that Jeff and Serena are talking about, I mean, I'll ask the question this way. Is there any dairy farmer in California who's interested in building more dairy farms in California? You know, let me add to that quickly. Um, you're right. There isn't anybody building class four facilities. However, it wouldn't take a hell of a lot for the class four price to drop down. All it'll take is an increase in production. As Serena says, you got three or four months of pricing, which 
is not conducive to uh, milk production in order for it to decline. You also have three or four months for milk production to go through the roof. Yeah, Ted, I, I think, I think there, you're right about we're in a different place. It's interesting to hear Ted number three there say what you did about three and four, because I had a robust debate with a well-known dairy economist who's a friend of all of ours eight, nine months ago, who told me, you know, we were arguing about this hire of class uh, three or four for the class one formula. And uh, I was arguing that we needed to go back to higher of. And he goes, well, you know, four's never going to be higher than three. I said, yeah, it will. And not only that, you can't bet on it. We don't know what's going to happen. One thing uh, I would just say dairymen react, we, we say they react to high milk prices. I'd say they react to high margins. $23 milk sounds like a great price. That's break even for a lot of guys right now. Uncertainty leads to a reluctance to make big capital investments. And I think there's just massive uncertainty throughout the West. But hey, when feed gets really expensive, proteins get really expensive. You know, do you spend that last dollar to go get that last couple of pounds of milk? I don't know, but I doubt it. I will add that at the end of the day, the cheese plants will get the milk because they're contracted for it or they're or they're the producers or the owners or however you want to look at it. So I think that in and of itself is the reason why we're going to have a higher trending class four relative to the class three for the foreseeable future. And so I would strongly agree with that just because of that alone. Because at the end of the day, butter powder plants are built to balance, and there's going to be less milk relative to available capacity elsewhere in these areas. And we speak a lot about California. Remember that California has grown recently only into class four capacity that's already there from more volume in the past. You don't need to grow the capacity in California, and you can still grow into the class four opportunity exists with the higher price. So I, I don't, there's limitations there that I think we're not recognizing, but nonetheless, I do believe there's going to be opportunity to move solids into class four as we move forward, especially on the West Coast. I also think no matter what, we're going to have growth into the cheese plants that are being added in the Southwest and the central part of our country. So no matter what, those voids are going to get filled. Having said that, I do believe your, your adverse farm economics that are going on in the Mideast and the Northeast have yet to play themselves out fully. And I do wonder if any added capacity will change that right now, uh, because the ability for the dairymen, and Serena, I hope you would agree with me, to grow in that, in that uh, southwest or, or you know, western Kansas all the way up to South Dakota, they're much more motivated to grow in those areas than they are in the Mideast or, or, or the Northeast, right? Your, your farm acreage is much cheaper, your access to land, access to water, your lack of regulation, all those things play into that. So it's, it's my feeling that we will have some haves and have nots as we move forward. And I think that's important to recognize as we have this discussion. Gus, I'd agree with that on the Southeast and the Northeast, the economics there are just adverse and the climate is adverse in the Southeast. And then in the Northeast, you have to deal with a much denser population and different regulations. In the Mideast, I think there's some opportunity for growth. It's one of the few places in the country that I can think of where there is excess processing capacity and not the type of beef costs that you see in the West. So I think we could see some growth there, but I don't think there's very much wide open space for the type of dairies, the cross fence that require a big land footprint. There's just not as much opportunity for that. But if a dairy producer can find that, 
I think that he'd be happy to locate there. In the past few years, the expansion has been in that I-29 corridor, that corner of Minnesota, South Dakota, Iowa. Land prices are going up significantly in that area, especially in Iowa, but also in those neighboring states where the corn yield isn't quite as high, but still very attractive. But they've had some real weather issues, and we've seen that in South Dakota, several years of tough farming out there. And the dairies that have moved in there recently have filled up the existing processing capacity. So it's going to take additional investment in that area on the processing side of the industry before we can see significant growth in milk production in that area. It's on the drawing board. There are dairies or dairy producers who are ready to go out there. I'm not saying there will be no expansion, but it's going to be a lot slower than it was in the past. And then you mentioned the Southwest, but there's a really stringent base program on in the Southwest. So supply management, I think it's going to hold things pretty steady in that part of the world. That makes sense. Jeff, let me ask the question, how big a cost difference do you think exists right now between dairy farmers in the Central Valley and dairy farmers, let's say, in Idaho, in Idaho or South Dakota or Texas? Well, you know, milk producers is part of the Western States Dairy Producer Trade Association. So we got milk producers from California, then Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Twice a month, we get together on calls. And uh, so the guy from Idaho, actually, the dairy farmer, he's not a board member, he gets on a call and, and uh, he always leaves his camera on and he's working on the dairy. You know, he's got this beautiful stack of hay. And I said, uh, Willie, what did that hay cost you? Oh, you guys, it's at $300. We can't buy grass for $300. <laughs> you know, his corn silage is 80, which he thought was outrageous, but we paid 120 this year. Mm-hmm. And the winter forage was 90. That used to be 40. Almond hulls, 300 bucks. Wheat straw. The other day, I was with guys and they, they were getting wheat straw out of Oregon. The guy brought it down in vans, you know, regular truck vans. And put the big bales in long ways. They couldn't figure out how to get them out of the van. So they paid two, they paid $225 a ton for wheat straw. I said, for wheat straw? They said, yeah, because the local guys around here wanted $260 for the wheat straw. Add $100 a ton. You know, cow eats 50 pounds of feed a day. That's another uh, five cents a, a pound times fifty two $2.50 a cow a day, higher feed costs, 80 pounds of milk. So three bucks a hundred weight. I was going to say that it varies widely, but it's between two and six dollars, I think, depending on business model, location, and what your feed costs are. Mm-hmm. Now, there are guys that got a lot of farm ground and got good water yet, and they're going to be fine, right? Corn silage would be $120, but they're growing it for a lot less than that. I'll say this. The big thing I learned today that I didn't realize was the difference in the issues in the northern part of the Central Valley versus the Southern part of the Central Valley. Just listening to what you were saying, it almost sounds like you can make, this may be a bit of a leap, but it sounds like cost of production is almost $2 less up around Turlock than it is maybe down around Visalia. Is that probably about it, right? It could be. It wasn't historically, but it, it could be right now. Well, Jeff, Serena, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time, guys. Really, yeah, really you're very welcome. It. So. I'm glad that we were able to get Jeff on so I didn't have to answer all those water questions in detail because I could have made some educated guesses, but this was way better. Well, I'm glad you had Serena because you needed somebody who knew what they were talking about when it comes to feed. Great seeing you guys and keep up your great work. I love the work that you do. Even though once in a while, Ted Sr. gets me a little irritated. <laughs>
<laughs> that goes Especially for all of us. Especially talking about make allowances. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> we'll save that for another day. We welcome your participation in the Milk Check. If you have comments to share or questions you want answered, send an email to podcast at jacoby.com. Our theme music is composed and performed by Phil Keggy. The Milk Check is a production of T.C. Jacoby & Company.